Spiritual Culture in the Theological Seminary, Part 1, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It is natural that at the opening of a new session, the minds of both professors and students, especially of those students who are with us for the first time, should be bent somewhat anxiously upon the matter which has brought us together. How are we who teach best to fulfil the trust committed to us of guiding others in the preparation for the high office of Minister of Grace? How are you who are here to make this preparation so to employ your time and opportunities as to become in the highest sense true stewards of the mysteries of Christ? Standing as you do at the close of your university work and at the beginning of three years more of mental labour, looking back at the conquests you have already made and forward at unconquered realms still lying before you, it would not be strange if your thoughts as they busy themselves with the preparation you require for your ministerial work should be predominantly occupied with intellectual training. It is the more important that we should pause to remind ourselves that intellectual training alone will never make a true minister, that the heart has rights which the head must respect, and that it behooves us above everything to remember that the ministry is a spiritual office. I should be sorry to leave the impression that it is questionable whether the church may not have laid too strong an emphasis on the intellectual outfit that is needed for her ministry. I must profess, indeed, that I am incapable of understanding the standpoint of those, for such there seem to be, who talk of the over-intellectualization of the ministry. The late Dr. Joseph T. Doria spoke rather strongly, but with substantial justice, when he declared it to be high time that the question whether culture and learning do not unfit preachers for the preaching of the gospel to ordinary men and women were referred back without response to the stupidity that inspires it. It is not to be denied, of course, that there are learned men who are perfectly useless in the ministry, and even, what is more surprising, that there are men of broad and varied, and, one would have thought, humanizing culture, who seem to be unable to turn their culture to any practical use. But it is yet to be shown that these same men without knowledge and destitute of the culture which might have been expected to humanize them would have been any more useful. Are there no ignorant men, no men innocent of all culture who are unpractical and of no possible use in the ministry? The fact is that when our Lord decreed that the religion he founded should be propagated by preaching, or to put it more broadly, when he placed it in the world with the commission to reason its way to the hearts of men, he put a premium on intellectual endowments and laid at the basis of ministerial equipment a demand for intellectual training, which no sophistry can cloud. The minister must have good tools with which to work and must keep these tools in good condition. You will find nothing in the curriculum which will be offered to you in this seminary, the mastery of which is not essential to your highest efficiency in your ministry. The intellectual training at present provided for candidates for the ministry is not above either their prospective needs or the easy possibilities of their present powers. You will be wise to give yourselves diligently to making full account of it. It would not be easy to exaggerate the intimacy of the relation between sound knowledge and sound religious feeling, and the connection between sound knowledge and success in ministerial work is equally close. 
Without study, says an experienced bishop of the Church of England with his eye on the daily life of the minister, it is true, but no less applicably to his preparation. Without study, we shall not only fail to bring to our people all the blessings which God intends for them, but we shall gradually become feeble and perfunctory in our ministrations. Our life may apparently be a busy one, and our time incessantly occupied, but our work will be comparatively fruitless. We shall be fighting as one that beateth the air. So intimate is the connection between the head and the heart and hand, indeed, that it is not unfair to say broadly that if undue intellectualism exhibits itself in those preparing for the ministry, the fault is relative, not absolute, that, in a word, there is not a too-muchness in the case at all, but a too-littleness somewhere else. The trouble with those whom a certain part of the world persists in speaking of as over-educated for an effective ministry is not that they are too highly trained intellectually, but that they are sadly under-trained spiritually. Not that their head has received too much attention, but that their heart has received too little. Of course, I shall not deny that it is possible to find men who are naturally lacking in sufficient mental power to pursue a seminary course profitably. And I am far from saying that there are none of these unlearned and ignorant men who have been so baptized with the Holy Spirit that the Church may profitably induct them into the ministry to which God has obviously called them. But these are rare exceptions, and I do not think it characteristic of this humble but honourable class that they refuse to make the best possible use of the mental powers that have been vouchsafed to them. Certainly it would be perilous for us to make the existence of such a class the excuse for neglecting to stir up the gift that is in us. Rather, I think it may be fairly inferred that when students for the ministry fail to take full advantage of the opportunities for intellectual culture offered them, the fault is usually to be found in the heart itself. When too much blood seems to have gone to the head, we may ordinarily justly presume that this is only because too little has gone to the heart. And similarly, when little or none is thrown to the head, we may quite generally suspect it is because the heart has too little within it to supply the needs of any organ. I have missed my mark in what I have been saying if, while insisting on the need of a strenuous intellectual preparation for the ministry, I have not also suggested that the deepest need is a profound spiritual preparation. An adequate preparation for the gospel ministry certainly embraces much more than merely the study of certain branches of learning. When Bishop Wilberforce opened Cuddeston College in 1854, he wrote, Threefold object of residence here. One, devotion. Two, parochial work. Three, theological reading. The special circumstances of candidates for holy orders in the Church of England suggested, as we shall subsequently see, the order in which these three elements in their preparation are mentioned. In our special circumstances, a different order might be suggested, but it does not, even on first sight, commend itself to you with clear convincingness that any proper preparation for the ministry must include these three chief parts, a training of the heart, a training of the hand, a training of the head a devotional, a practical, and an intellectual training. Such a training, in a word, as that we may learn first to know Jesus, then to grasp the message he would have us deliver to men, and then how he would have us work for him in his vineyard. We are told by the evangelist Mark, 3.14, that when Jesus appointed his twelve apostles, it was first that they might be with him, and then that he might send them forth to preach. 
And surely we may believe that we who are the successors of the apostles as the evangelizers of the world have been called like them, first of all, to be with Jesus and only then to go forth to preach. It may not be without significance that out of the 14 or 15 qualifications which, according to the Apostle Paul, must unite in order to fit a man to be a bishop, only one requires an intellectual preparation. The bishop must be apt to teach, but aptness to teach is only the beginning of his fitting. All the other requirements are rooted in his moral or spiritual fitness. I am not going to lose myself in a vain, perhaps worse than vain, inquiry as to which of the three lines of preparation I have hinted at is the most essential. Why raise a question between three lines of training, each of which is essential both in itself and to the proper prosecution of the others? If intellectual acuteness will not of itself make a man an acceptable minister of Christ, neither will facility and energy in practical affairs by themselves, nor yet piety and devotion alone. The three must be twisted together into a single three-ply cord. We are not to ask whether we will cultivate the one or the other, or whether we will give our chief attention to the one or the other. We must simultaneously push our forces over all three lines of approach, if we are to capture the stronghold of a successful ministry at all. Doing so, they will interact, as we have suggested, each to secure the others. Do we wish to grow in grace? It is the knowledge of God's truth that sanctifies the heart. Do we desire a key to the depths of God's truth? It is a spirit-led man who discerns all things. Are our hearts in travail for the dying thousands about us? How eager, then, will be our search in the fountain of life for the waters of healing? Is the way weary? Do we not know whence alone can be derived our strength for the journey of life? There is no way so surely to stimulate the appetite for knowledge as to quicken the sense of the need of it in the wants of our own spiritual life or in the calls of practical work for others. There is no way so potent for awakening a craving for personal holiness or for arousing a love of souls in our hearts as to fill the mind with a knowledge of God's love to man as revealed in his holy book. The reciprocal relation in which the several lines of preparation for the ministry stand to one another supplies me with my first remark as I address myself to the task immediately before me, of attempting to outline in a practical way some account of how your spiritual training may be advanced during your stay in the seminary. This remark takes a negative form and amounts to saying with some emphasis that your spiritual growth will not be advanced by the neglect of the very work for which you resort to the seminary. Such a remark may seem to some of you out of place. It is perhaps not so entirely unnecessary as it may appear. There is a valuable bit from his own personal experience given us by the late Philip Brooks in his Yale lectures, which I shall repeat here for our admonition also. He is impressing on his readers the important truth that the first and most evident element in a true preparation for the ministry consists in a mastery of the professional studies leading up to it. He writes as follows. Most men begin really to study when they enter on the preparation for their professions. Men whose college life with its general culture has been very idle begin to work when the door of the professional school, the work of their life, comes into sight before them. It is the way in which a bird who has been wheeling vaguely hither and thither sees at last its home in the distance and flies toward it like an arrow. 
But shall I say to you how often I have thought that the very transcendent motives of the young minister's study have a certain tendency to bewilder him and make his study less faithful than that of men seeking other professions from lower motives. The highest motive often dazzles before it illuminates. It is one of the ways in which the light within us becomes darkness. I never shall forget my first experience of a divinity school. I had come from a college where men studied hard but said nothing about faith. I had never been at a prayer meeting in my life. The first place I was taken to at the seminary was the prayer meeting, and never shall I lose the impression of the devoutness with which those men prayed and exhorted one another. Their whole souls seemed exalted and their natures were on fire. I sat bewildered and ashamed and went away depressed. On the next day I met some of these same men at a Greek recitation. It would be little to say of some of the devoutest of them that they had not learnt their lesson. Their whole way showed that they had never learnt their lessons, that they had not got hold of the first principles of hard, faithful, conscientious study. The boiler had no connection with the engine. The devotion did not touch the work, which then and there was the work and the only work for them to do. By and by I found something of where the steam did escape to. A sort of amateur, premature preaching was much in vogue among us. We were in haste to be at what we called our work, a feeble twilight of the coming ministry we lived in. The people in the neighbourhood dubbed us parsonettes, Oh, my fellow students, the special study of theology and all that appertains to it, that is what the preacher must be doing always, but he can never do it afterward as he can in the blessed days of quiet in Arabia after Christ has called him and before the apostles lay their hands upon him. In many respects, an ignorant clergy, however pious it may be, is worse than none at all. The more the empty head glows and burns, the more hollow and thin and dry it grows. The knowledge of the priest, said St. Francis de Sales, is the eighth sacrament of the church. Well, it was not at Princeton Seminary that Dr. Brooks saw these evils. Perhaps they do not exist here. Let us hope that they do not, at least in the measure in which he portrays them. Nevertheless, his experience may fitly be laid to heart by us for our warning. The religious training which a minister needs to get in his days of preparation assuredly cannot be had by neglecting the very work he is set to do in favour of any show of devoutness which does not affect the roots of his conduct or of any show of zeal in another work which it is not yet his to do. Of course, there is another side to it. This religious training is not already obtained by the mere refusal to be led away from our primary work at the seminary by practical calls upon our energies. Our primary business at the seminary is, no doubt, to obtain the intellectual fitting for our ministerial work, and nothing must be allowed to supersede that in our efforts. But neither must the collateral prosecution of the requisite training of the heart and hand be neglected as opportunity offers, nor will a properly guarded attention to these injure the discharge of our scholastic duties. It will, on the contrary, powerfully advance their successful performance." The student cannot too sedulously cultivate devoutness of spirit. The maxim has been often verified in the experience of us all. Bene orasse est bene studuisse. When the heart is thoroughly aroused, the slowest mind starts into motion and an impulse is given it which carries it triumphantly over intellectual difficulties before which it quailed afraid. And equally, a proper taste of the practical work of the ministry is a great quickener of the mind for the intellectual preparation. 
We cannot do without these things, and the student must be very careful, therefore, even on this somewhat low ground, while not permitting any distractions to divert him from his primary task as a student, yet to take full advantage of all proper opportunities that may arise to train his heart and hand also. Preparation for ministerial service is very much like building a machine, say a locomotive. The intellectual work may have been accomplished and the machine may stand perfect before us, but it will not go unless the vital force of devotion is throbbing through it. Knowledge is a powerful thing and practical tact is a powerful thing, and so is a locomotive a powerful thing, provided it has steam in it. Though I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if I have not the love of God and man welling up in invincible power beneath it all, and lifting it all and transmuting it all into effective working force, it profits me nothing. But the question comes back to us, how are we to obtain this spiritual culture in the seminary? Well, theological students in becoming theological students have not ceased to be men, and there is no other way for them to become devout men than that which is common to man. There is but one way, brethren, to become strong in the Lord, that way is to feed on the bread of life. This is the way other men, who would fain be devout, take, and it is the way we, if we would fain be devout, must take. We are simply asking ourselves then, as theological students, what opportunities are offered us by our residence in the seminary for the cultivation of faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to Him. What we are eager to know is how we can not merely keep alive, but fan into a brighter flame the fires of our love for our Lord and Saviour. I desire to be perfectly plain and simple in attempting to suggest an answer to this question. I shall therefore only enumerate in the barest manner some of the ways in which the devout life may be assisted in the conditions in which we live in the seminary. First of all, I must point you to the importance of a diligent use of the public means of grace. Public means of grace abound in the seminary. There is the stated Sabbath morning service in the chapel, and no student who is not prevented from attending it by some imperative duty should fail to be in his seat at that service, adding whatever his presence and his prayers can bring to the spiritual forces at work there. Then there is our weekly conference on Sabbath afternoon, in which we talk over together the blessed promises of our God and seek to learn better his will for the ordering of our lives. There have been those in times past whose hearts have been stirred within them at these conferences, and they may be made by the seeking spirit very precious seasons of social meditation and prayer. Then, faculty and students meet daily at the close of the day's work to listen to a fragment of God's word, mingle their voices in praise to God, and ask his blessing on the labor of the day. Indeed, we proceed to no one of our classroom exercises without pausing a moment to lift up our hearts to God in prayer. And every effort is made by all of us who teach, I know, in all our teaching, however it may appear from moment to moment to be concerned with mere parts of speech, or the signification of words, or the details of history, or the syllogisms of formal logic, to preserve a devout spirit and a reverent heart, as becomes those who are dealing even with the outer coverings that protect the mysteries of God. I need not stay to speak with particularity of the more rarely occurring stated services, such as the monthly concert of prayer for missions and the like. Enough has been said to suggest the richness of provision made in the seminary for public worship, and assuredly, amid such abounding opportunities for the quickening of the religious life, it ought to be a comparatively easy thing to cultivate devoutness of spirit. 
You will doubtless observe that I have said nothing, so far, of additional opportunities for social worship afforded by public services open to the attendance of the students outside the boundaries of the seminary, or by voluntary associations for religious culture among the students themselves. These also are abundant and have their parts to play in your edification. They may be justly accounted supplementary means of grace, useful to you, each in its own place and order. But what I am insisting on now is something which no such services, whether without or within the seminary walls, can supply. Something which, by the grace of God, can go much deeper into the bases of your religious nature and lay much broader foundations for the building up of a firm and consistent and abiding Christian character. I am exhorting you to give great diligence to the cultivation of the stated means of grace provided by the seminary, to live in them and make them the full and rich expression of the organic religious life of the institution. I am touching on something here that seems to me to be of the utmost importance and which does not seem to me to have received the attention from the students which it deserves. Every body of men bound together in as close and intimate association as we are must have an organic life. And if the bonds that bind them together are fundamentally of a religious character, this organic life must be fundamentally a religious one. We do not live on the top of our privileges in such circumstances unless we succeed in giving this organic religious life full power in our own lives and full expression in the stated means provided for its expression. No richness of private religious life, no abundance of voluntary religious services on the part of members of the organism can take the place of or supersede the necessity for the fullest, richest and most fervent expression of this organic religious life through its appropriate channels. I exhort you, therefore, brethren, with the utmost seriousness, to utilize the public means of grace afforded by the seminary and to make them instruments for the cultivation and expression of the organic religious life of the institution. We shall not have done our duty by our own souls until we find in these public services the joy of our hearts and the inspiration of our conduct. Let me go a step further and put into plain words a thought that is floating in my mind. The entire work of the seminary deserves to be classed in the category of means of grace, and the whole routine of work done here may be made a very powerful means of grace if we will only prosecute it in a right spirit and with due regard to its religious value. For what are we engaging ourselves with in our daily studies but just the word of God, the history of God's dealings with his people, the great truths that he has revealed to us for the salvation of our souls? And what are we doing when we engage ourselves day after day with these topics of study and meditation, but just what every Christian man strives to do when he is seeking nutriment for his soul? The only difference is that what he does sporadically, at intervals, and somewhat primarily, it is your privilege to give yourself to unbrokenly for a space of three whole years. Precious years these ought to be to you, brethren, in the culture of the spiritual life. If such contact as we in the seminary have the privilege of enjoying with divine truth does not sanctify our souls, should we not infer either that it is a mistake to pray in Christ's own words, sanctify us in the truth, thy word is truth, or else that our hearts are so indurated as no longer to be capable of reaction even to so powerful a reagent as the very truth of God? I beseech you, brethren, take every item of your seminary work as a religious duty. I am emphasizing the adjective in this. I mean, do all your work religiously, that is, with a religious end in view, in a religious spirit, and with the religious side of it dominant in your mind. 
Do not lose such an opportunity as this to enlighten, deepen, and strengthen your devotion. Let nothing pass by you without sucking the honey from it. If you learn a Hebrew word, let not the merely philological interest absorb your attention. Remember that it is a word which occurs in God's holy book. Recall the passages in which it stands. Remind yourself what great religious truths it has been given to it to have a part in recording for the saving health of men. Every biblical text whose meaning you investigate treat as a biblical text, a part of God's holy word, before which you should stand in awe. It is wonderful how even the strictest grammatical study can be informed with reverence. You cannot read six lines of Bishop Ellicott's commentaries, critical and grammatical, on Paul's epistles without feeling through and through that here is a man studying the word of God. O sic omnes! Let us make such commentators our models in our study of the word and learn like them to keep in mind whose word it is we are dealing with, even when we are merely analysing its grammatical expression. And when, done with grammar, we begin to weigh the meaning, oh, let us remember what meaning it has to us. Apply every word to your own souls as you go on and never rest satisfied until you feel as well as understand. Every item of God's dealing with his church to which your attention is directed, contemplate reverently as an act of God and search out the revelation it carries of God and his ways with man. And the doctrines, need I beg you to consider these doctrines not as so many propositions to be analysed by your logical understanding, but as rather so many precious truths revealing to you God and God's modes of dealing with sinful man. John Owen, in his great work on justification, insists and insists again that no man can ever penetrate the significance of this great doctrine unless he persistently studies it, not in the abstract light of the question, how can man be just with God, but in the searching light of the great personal question, how can I, sinner as I am, be accepted of God? It is wonderful how inadequacies in conceiving what is involved in justification fall away under the illumination of this personal attitude towards it. And is it conceivable that it can be so studied and the heart remain cold and unmoved? Treat, I beg you, the whole work of the seminary as a unique opportunity offered you to learn about God, or rather, to put it at the height of its significance, to learn God, to come to know Him whom to know is life everlasting. If the work of the seminary shall be so prosecuted, it will prove itself to be the chief means of grace in all your lives." I have heard it said that some men love theology more than they love God. Do not let it be possible to say that of you. Love theology, of course, but love theology for no other reason than it is theology, the knowledge of God, because it is your meat and drink to know God, to know Him truly, and as far as it is given to mortals, to know Him whole. End of Spiritual Culture in the Theological Seminary, Part 1, by B.B. B. Warfield.